Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, your social media data isn't safe. Is now the time to care? A green pilot project in Brownsville. And a laugh along with laughaholics. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us today. Are you a U.S. citizen? Who wants to know? Well, that's easy. The Trump administration. Yep. After a 70-year absence, they want to put that question back on the U.S. Census in 2020. Why? Well, they say it will help prevent voter discrimination during voting. How is not clear. And why they would say this is puzzling when they've been pushing discriminatory voter ID laws. But what it most certainly will do is make it so some people, especially immigrants, decline to participate, which will make the census useless unless you're a red state Republican hoping to get more seats in Congress. Because the census is used to show population. And from that population, we decide districts and representation. Fewer people in blue states participating is good politics for them, means more districts and more representation, and more years of a majority Congress that likes to take away health care, give tax breaks to the rich, and keep assault rifles on the open market. Hooray! On the show today, we'll talk about the Facebook scandal involving Cambridge Analytica with an author who has repeatedly warned about such unwarranted intrusions into our personal data. Brownsville goes green with solar energy, and our resident laughaholic will tell us about a live event at Brick. But first, these things. Bay Ridge State Senator Martin Golden, a Republican, is under fire for the actions of one of his staffers, Anthony Testaverde. On Saturday, he shared Facebook posts comparing Democrats and gun control advocates, including a Parkland survivor, to Nazis. One post showed the survivor with his arm extended, with a picture of Hitler superimposed. And the caption, I knew there was something off about this kid. A second post said, quote, Democrats are doing exactly what Hitler did. He used the youth to disarm and control the people. This is scary. Yes, It's scary when a person vilifies kids for expressing their First Amendment rights. Kids, mind you, who are fighting against a monolithic special interest and the politicians it holds drunk and hostage. Oh, and let's just stop comparing people to Nazis. You know, unless they're actual Nazis. Golden denounced the post and had it deleted. But his opponents in the upcoming race for his Senate seat have called for Testaverde's firing, saying he shouldn't receive one more dime of taxpayer money. We're awash in development over here on the Flatbush Corridor. Skyscrapers rising at alarming rates, new office space and condos opening up almost daily, it seems. Well, Community Board 2 is seeking to stall some of that. They're hosting a meeting to block the construction of 80 Flatbush, a proposed development that will include Brooklyn's tallest building, at least for now. The folks opposed to the project are concerned that the additional 922 residential units will overtax the local infrastructure and that it's simply too big, blocking views of and from the Williamsburg clock tower, and that it's totally out of context in a brownstone neighborhood. The meeting is Wednesday the 28th at 6 p.m. at St. Francis College in Brooklyn Heights. Check it out, listen to the plan, and make up your own mind. Did you see it? A new website just surfaced. The URL is Eric Adams 2021. What does it mean and what does it say? Well, last things first. It says that Eric Adams was an NYPD cop. 
also that he was a cop who cared about the community, that he was state senator and the borough president. But okay, we know that. Why is there a website telling us this? Hmm, 2021, there's a clue. Still not quite sure though, Eric, if this came from you. Can you spell it out for us? Oh, maybe he did. It also says that Eric is ready to service this city that he loves in a mayor way. Oops, I mean major. Up next, our first guest talks about social media, our society, and scandal. A couple weeks back, we had a conversation with an author and journalist who proposes getting rid of social media. He wrote a book about it. He said the price we pay in terms of surveillance and the weaponization of our data is too high. And this was before the story broke about the open breach of data from 50 million Facebook users by Cambridge Analytica that was used by Trump surrogates in an attempt to influence, to influence voters. So we invited him to come on again to talk about the latest developments and see if any of this came as a surprise to him. Jacob Silverman, welcome back to 112BK. Thank you. So let's just start at the beginning. Can you catch people up real quick for our listeners? Because I know we had you on just a couple weeks back. We had already gotten kind of into this conversation about sort of like the evil um, potential of social media. And then, like clockwork, boom. All of this about Cambridge Analytica comes out. What do we know so far? Yeah, it seems to be a pretty well-timed story for our purposes. Uh, so the Cambridge Analytica story is pretty complicated, but the simpler version, I'd say, is that Cambridge Analytica essentially contracted out with an academic from Cambridge University mm -hmm. to help collect all this data on Facebook users. And that academic, he had made this simple personality test, which he put on Facebook, and he also paid people through Amazon's Mechanical Turk service to take this test. And the real uh, important feature of this is that once he got people to take the test, this was back in 2011, 2012, mm -hmm. he could then collect uh, information about those people's friends. So that's how oh. about 300,000 people taking the test turned into 50 million profiles that they had information about. And wow. so for a while, this was Facebook policy that if you had an app connected to the Facebook platform, you could co collect lots of information about not only about users, but about their friends. And this is the sort of breach, some people call it a breach, some don't, or sort of the, the hole that Facebook supposedly plugged in its right. uh, data privacy structure. This is really interesting. Like, that is really interesting when I read about the fact that somebody else could take this personality quiz through, fa like, through Facebook, but being paid through Amazon, mm -hmm. and that then they would have access to other people's information. Now... I know that there's been some conversation around the word breach because if people are handing over their information to these third parties, is it a breach or is it just the information that they have? But if someone, I don't, like someone who I friended on Facebook 10 years ago at, you know, some camp, <laughs> you know what I mean? They take a test and now they have my information. Is that not a breach? I would say so. I mean, it's certainly undermining people's privacy. Right. Um, it, it, we also have to look at this issue of data privacy. is not just about um, what you put into the system or what you post and who sees your posts. It's about what you described about this information being collected about you, often against mm -hmm. your will. And uh, it's just such a complicated world and kind of an unknown world that even when users have privacy controls in Facebook or have very right. granular privacy controls, it's really hard to prevent against this kind of thing. Yeah, obvi obviously. Um, 
In your book, you talk about sort of like the, you know, dangers and the potential dangers of social media, but then something like this happens, Cambridge Analytica. Are you even a little bit surprised by what they were up to? I'm surprised by at least the scope of what they claim to. That's mm. what's sort of difficult about the story is that there's been a lot of good reporting, but it's hard to tell um, how effective Cambridge Analytica's techniques are. Mm. I think they probably did push the needle a little bit for Trump, especially because they were bombarding millions of people with these ads, and they only need a few thousand here and there to, to work. Right. Um, I was also uh, uh, surprised at the scale, though, of their operations. They claim to be working in elections all over the world. Mm -hmm. you got to assume Cambridge Analytica isn't the only one doing this kind of work. You have yeah. other companies, other governments who are doing this sort of thing. So it is pretty remarkable the, the scale at which we suddenly have seen this kind of gray market economy of data collection and manipulation going on. How does somebody like me, who is online quite a bit, like, how do I even begin to protect my data or even be aware of how my data is being used? It's almost impossible in some ways. I mean, there are things you can do. You can get... Um, from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a good uh, digital privacy and rights organization. They have something called the Privacy Badger, which is uh, sort of a test you can take to uh, check out how safe you are online, if you're kind of leaking data behind you as you go. Uh, there are different plugins you can get for your browser. You can go to Facebook's privacy controls and try to lock everything down as much as you can. Mm -hmm. But uh, one point that I and some other commentators try to make is that we're really all in this together. We're all having data collected about us. Facebook also does something that have been referred to as shadow profiles or dark profiles, right. where they're collecting information about people who aren't even on Facebook. And companies like Facebook are also making deals with data brokers, buying all kinds of data about people's shopping habits and things like that. So even if you think you're all locked down and you have your whole right. house in order, you don't necessarily. Talk to me about shadow profiles. Well, there's this notion that uh, Facebook has, it seems, that Everyone would want to be part of Facebook mm -hmm. um, if they're not already. And so we just make it easier to, uh, to kind of accelerate that process by collecting information about them. This is not something they talk about very much. Wow. But, for example, any website that has a Facebook Like button on it mm -hmm. is collecting information about who's visiting that website, what they're reading, and what they're doing. So Facebook can even just put together a profile of someone who they've identified with a, partic a particular IP address, and they know what, which websites they're going to wow. and what they're reading. And then maybe later down the road, that person joins Facebook or they sign into their Facebook account. Facebook is often able to put that data together and form a more complete picture of who this person is. Wow. That is a little wild. Yeah, I don't it's think a I knew that that was the case. Um, another uh, sort of wild thing that I, uh, that I heard that um, Facebook in this situation is working exactly as it was designed to. What I do think, you think very about much that? so. Yeah, I think yeah. Facebook is basically linking different partners who want to advertise to certain people mm -hmm. with those people they're trying to find. And Facebook has this unbelievable mass of data about people, so they are able to make these very fine-grained distinctions and judgments. Uh, so if you're just trying to sell someone shoes or a dress or something like that, it's certainly not as concerning. If you're trying to steer them to vote for someone, or we've had uh, examples of police collecting data about protesters, especially for Black Lives Matters protesters through Facebook, those kinds of things, you start to see how this data is not just about um, shopping and ads online. It's also about issues of personal autonomy, freedom, and really people's core rights. Wow. Wow. It's kind of freaking me out a little bit, to be perfectly honest. Um, one of the terms that I heard for the first time as it pertained to Facebook was it being called a surveillance advertising 
company. Now, is that just a pejorative way of, of you know, a descriptor, or is it accurate to call them? I think it's rather truthful. There's a term that I use that uh, comes from the academic world that I think is very valid called surveillance capitalism, similar mm -hmm. way of phrasing things, because that's really Facebook's business model. And we have to be clear, it's the business model of Google and a lot of other big internet companies, anyone okay. essentially who gives away their product for free. Right. Even other companies that have uh, products that people pay for, they're often in sort of a side business of data. Mm. Um, so I think we have to really look at Facebook as a giant surveillance machine in the same way that Google is. In Google's case, it's very obvious at times. They actually send right. cars through the world that surveil our world. And Facebook right. is very much doing the same thing, just surveilling our, our data, our, excuse me, our behavior and our actions. Wow. Did you watch the testimony or at all pay attention to the testimony of the whistleblower? I haven't been able to watch it yet, but I saw yeah. some of the readout of it. Yeah. Well, one of the things that I keep thinking about or I keep wondering how this is going to work out, not just for this individual, but, you know, this is obviously an individual who we're going to hear a lot from, or at least we're going to hear a lot about over... Um, over a long time, most likely. But what are going to be the consequences of this, do you think, for Facebook? Is it just a slight dip in public trust before it bounces back? Or do you think there's a potential for some real consequences in this situation? It seems like this is a big deal. This right. is certainly the biggest crisis I think the company has ever faced. They've had lots of other sort of mini privacy dramas that have flared up in the media uh, right. now and then. Uh, I think right. it could be a big deal in that Facebook in 2011 came to an agreement with the Federal Trade Commission over previous privacy incidents, mm -hmm. and they basically agreed for 20 years to abide by certain standards, to not mislead users about privacy. Right. And there's specifically some language in that agreement which talks about harvesting friends' user data, the exact thing that Cambridge Analytica supposedly did. So for violating that agreement, Facebook could be fined up to $40,000 mm -hmm. per infraction. When you say that there are at least 50 million infractions, that's billions right. of dollars. Now, under this sort of administration, I don't really expect that to happen, but it's possible that they could have at least uh, a fine that's greater than what we've seen before. Right. I think what Facebook is also afraid of is that this is just the first investigation of many. They're going to be facing a lot oh, more yeah. here and overseas. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's inevitable. I think that there isn't a way to get around that. Um, one of the things that I also, and forgive me, I'm a little confused about um, how this works particularly, but um, the whistleblower I know today was talking about uh, third parties and about how a place like Cambridge Analytica, like, while, you know, obviously, like, selling some of this information in some places, it's also selling to other parties, like third and fourth parties. How, like, how does that work? Is there any way to, like, get that back, to, like, reel that in? Like, once it's out there, it's just out there, right? Like, what could possibly be the reaction to that? I, I think uh, your comment that once it's out there, it's out there is pretty much the case. I mean, supposedly in 2015, Facebook found out about this incident with Cambridge Analytica. Mm -hmm. They contacted Cambridge Analytica and said, we expect you to delete all this Facebook data. Mm -hmm. And Cambridge Analytica claimed that they complied. Mm -hmm. um, it seems, however you parse it, that they did not comply. But it's also possible that they comply with the letter of the request and that they delete the data, but they already had the model and all the, and the software that they built off of that data. But I think the point is, 
that Cambridge Analytica could easily sell this information to other parties, just as any other number of app makers who have access right. to the Facebook platform could do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we just simply don't know where it goes or how deep it goes. The real way to sort of suss that out, I think, is by looking at contracts. So there seems to be a trail of that with Cambridge Analytica. But there's so many other kind of fly-by-night operations here. And so I worry more about the other data brokers who are operating more in the shadows than, than CA seems mm. to be. Well, you know, there are going to be a lot of people, I think, who are going to ask, so what? Like, what's the harm of these people having my data, selling my data? Doesn't that just mean ads follow me around right. online? Like, who cares? Right. I mean, what do you say to that? Well, I think this incident is so valuable because it shows it's not just about ads, or it's mm -hmm. about ads that might try to drive you not just to buy something, but to vote for someone. Right. And that even if you don't think you can be influenced, other people might. Mm -hmm. Also, what I say is that privacy is a social good. It's not just for yourself. It's for everyone. It's for other people. Mm -hmm. It's especially for the most vulnerable. Right. So you might think that you have nothing to hide, but there are other people who have information that might end up in a credit report. Mm -hmm. It might end up in a housing application. It might end up uh, being used against them in a job application. Right. And this is all the kind of information we're sort of leaking about ourselves online. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of information that really needs to be protected, especially for those people who are perhaps part of a minority community or someone who's been traditionally disadvantaged. Mm. Wow. And what do you say to people who are still on Facebook? Like, what would you recommend they do? I, uh, there are some folks who have said, don't delete Facebook, we have mm -hmm. to band together and kind of rally as consumers. I think that's a good sentiment, but at the same time, I also think it's fine to delete Facebook and, mm -hmm. and to, in some sense, put your money where your mouth is. <laughs> right. They need us. If they start seeing that people are deleting their accounts, they'll notice a difference. But really, most importantly, we need some broad-based regulation, legislation. We need to get our centers involved. Right. A lot of countries have some sort of information ministry that regulates data privacy and other related issues. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why we can't have one of those too. Why don't we have one of those? I think it's because the fear of regulation, lobbying from mm. the big tech and telecom companies right. are the main reason. There is also a lot of stuff the FTC could do, mm -hmm. but we'd like it. I think people like me want an organization like the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau mm -hmm. or like uh, the, Engl the British who have a Ministry of Information who can right. actually work directly on these issues. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for coming here and explaining more of this wild, wild social world. It's a us. wild world. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, Jacob. NYC is a city partnership designed to reduce barriers to solar power in communities that historically have had limited access. They seek to educate on its importance, simplify the process of installation, and reduce prices. Brownsville is one of three neighborhoods in the city where pilot projects have already begun. To hear more about it and how solar power makes sense for this part of the borough, we spoke recently to individuals from two community organizations that are partnering with the city to bring this to life. Malawi Hermeku, Executive Director of Nehemiah Economic Development Incorporated, and Cyrus Smith, Director of Brownsville Think Tank Matters. Maui and Cyrus, thank you so much for being here today and talking to us about this exciting project. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Maui, can you just start by telling me briefly what Solarize NYC project is? Okay, well, Solarize NYC is essentially uh, the city's campaign and providing access to solar energy to communities that are, have 
not been ha have not gained that access for years. Mm -hmm. um, and um, this particular campaign, Solarize Nehemiah, is based in Brownsville. Yes. Right. Yes. Right. Cyrus, talk to me a little bit about Brownsville and um, why this project uniquely, uniquely works in Brownsville or should work. With this initiative here, focusing on the uh, solar paneling, mm -hmm. um, focusing more kind of on the environment, it becomes an environmental issue, and it allows us to get away with some of the social ills that, you know, like are normally associated with Brownsville. So mm -hmm. that's why we're excited about partnering, you know, like on this, on this initiative here. I love that. Mm -hmm. And how did Brownsville become, Browns, Brownsville, yeah. how did Brownsville become part of this initiative? If you know about uh, Nehemiah Homes, it was one of uh, the premier affordable home ownership programs. Mm -hmm. So there are uh, approximately 1,100 uh, Nehemiah Homes in Brownsville alone, and they are single-family units. But they are, we are the most concentrated, solar-viable, uh, structured homes and probably in the nation. Wow. Um, so it's all clustered. So it wasn't planned when they built it in, in, in 1984, but they left the gem for us. So what we did, we created a, uh, uh, the creator, co-creator Malcolm Bliss and I, we yeah. created a program to make sure that the youth benefit from Solarize Nehemiah. Can we, okay, let's start in one place first. What is it specifically about the Nehemiah homes Right. that make them so incredibly apt for solarization. So you have, like, you have a clustered con uh, concentration of these homes with pitch roofs go uh, going mild blocks, blocks mm -hmm. of just nothing but roofs that are viable for solar paneling. Already uniquely there. Right. And then this great opportunity then right. to involve the youth. Cyrus, can you talk to me a little bit about how that might you know, invigorate or, you know, just be fantastic for the area to have, like, this initiative really pay off for the youth? Well, so what brought us uh, into this partnership, uh, I work with, uh, as a program advisor for Brownsville Think Tank Matters. Right. And one of our signature programs is the Public Speaking for Social Justice Initiative, mm -hmm. where young people uh, research mm -hmm. a social justice topic that they're interested in. Oh, wow. uh, when this opportunity was uh, introduced to us, uh, we went and pulled some of the students who participated in our class. We thought that they would be good candidates for the solar, for the solar pioneer initiative. But this is an economic initiative because uh, there is a... But if the education is there, right, the education component leads to right, the right. economic growth and also creates an economic center, which is kind of what I want to talk to you about right. because when somebody says Brownsville, you don't think necessarily green energy. No. That's no, not the right. first thing that no, comes no. to your mind. Right. So, you know, potentially what could this mean for Brownsville in becoming, you know, what might be a little bit of like an epicenter, right. you know, of right. not just, of not just right. you know, how these things work, but also people and specifically young people who know how to work with solar power. Right. Well, first of all, I want to say uh, uh, I'm grateful for Sustainable CUNY, mm -hmm. I'm grateful for EDC, and I'm grateful for the Mayor's Office of Sustainability because they're bold enough and not afraid to say the next Elon Musk might be from Brownsville or East wow. New York because this Solar Pioneer program is a program where we, plant, where we are planting seeds, mm -hmm. right, that these young men and women can actually see grow. This is the only program in the nation, and I repeat, in the nation, that involves youth, youth workforce development, mm -hmm. education, as well as solar awareness and community engagement all in one. You're right. never going to get a program like this. They, we, had, um, we had a solar boot camp two weeks ago, mm -hmm. um, eight-hour college course. 
Right. 25 students showed up, and we were only allowed to pick five. Wow. Nine o'clock. We had 25 Brownsville students. And this is a place where um, majority of the kids live under the poverty line. Wow. 87% of the third graders cannot read on grade level. 10% of the population have college degrees. So we're changing the narrative. Wow. We're changing the narrative. What are the goals ultimately of the project? If somebody, if I was having this conversation with someone right now, I tell them about solar, solarization, mm -hmm. I tell them about this opportunity and they say, okay, but what are they gonna do? What are like just, I mean, if you have three big goals, what are they? Well, the, cre the, the increase the solar, the use of solar energy in mm -hmm. my community, that's number one, we wanna save the community. Um, mm -hmm. But my main priority is to save the children to mm -hmm. save the young men and women. So we want to give them um, preparation for the new job careers in, um, green, in the green industry. Right. That's what I want to do. I want to make sure that they're prepared um, to handle uh, any opportunity that comes in regards to the solar world. Right. And I think that um, we're, do we're doing that. And we're doing that well. Right. We're doing that well. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and one more question for both of you at the end, and I'll start with you, Moelle, and then I'll ask Cyrus. Um, if there's one thing you want people to know about Brownsville right now, mm -hmm. what is it? I would, I would have to say Brownsville has a new narrative. Mm -hmm. When you have a, a, a young man from me who grew up in Mother Gaston, who ended up going to Boston College and Columbia University and has uh, returned back to his community to make sure uh, the, the young men and women have the same opportunity, mm -hmm. and even better, we, we have a new narrative, and that narrative deals more with legacy building and altruism. I love that. I love that. Cyrus? Well said. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, honestly, uh, we tell folk, uh, uh, you know, like, don't believe everything, you know, like, that, that you see. Um, mm -hmm. So, of course, you know, like, again, I, I use the term, you know, like, social ills. So, of course, the area, you know, like, has, you know, like, some challenges, right? Um, I also like to say that uh, the neighborhood is not necessarily under-resourced, mm -hmm. but maybe the resources are, you know, they may be mismanaged because mm. there are a lot of opportunities. So, I just like to tell folk, um, you know, like, let's look at it, a, you know, like, a little differently. Let's mm -hmm. manage what we have, you know, like, better. Um, right. And then we can change the narrative. I yeah. like that. I like thank that. Well, thank you both for being here. I really appreciate appreciate you taking the time. Um, want to have you back, especially as this program progresses. I'm going to want updates. I'm going to want to know what's going on Definitely in Brownsville. So please come back for that. Thank All you right, so right, much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Every Wednesday night, the man you're about to meet can be found at a diner deep in Brooklyn making people laugh while they finish their fries. Ray Dijon is both comedian and supporter of other stand-up comics. He's president and founder of Dijon Entertainment, which produces a national touring show called Stand Up Comedy at the Movies. Closer to home, Ray now presents Lapaholics at the Brooklyn Museum every month and runs Brooklyn's first black-owned comedy club called, you guessed it, Lapaholics. That weekly show at the Lindenwood Diner in East New York is filmed and broadcast on Brick TV. But this Friday night, March 30th, Lapaholics will be live right here at Brick House. Yesterday, he stopped by for a preview and some laughs. Let's take a look. Ray, thank you so much for being here today, first of all. Oh, you're welcome. Pleasure to be here, actually. It's our pleasure to have you. 
You guys are also an amazing brick show, one of the most popular brick shows, because we're trying, we trying to creep up on you. We're trying to get your numbers. We're trying to be like you. Uh -huh. But <laughs> what is it about comedy? Why do you think so many people love to tune in for comedy? Uh, well, comedy to me is not a new wave, but I consider it, uh, for me, a new wave drug. Mm -hmm. It makes you feel good. Yeah. Um, Anything that makes you feel good, if it's if it's done the right way, if you get the right dose, mm -hmm. it's going to help. It's going to help you with your day. It's going to help you with your job. It's going to help you with everything. And it's been scientifically proven oh, yeah. that laughing is good for your health, your spirit, and your, your mental. Yeah. That's really interesting <clears throat> that you say your mental um, health, because one of the things that has happened that I've noticed, uh, especially post-election, um, is that a lot of my friends have really gotten into like either going to see more live comedy or like when they want to go to the movies, they want to see something that's like that's going to make them laugh specifically. Like that's what they're looking for. Do you think that they, this is a really unique time for comedy, especially with this administration? Well, the administration led by Trump mm -hmm. actually gives us comedians plenty of material. <laughs> so if you go to Saturday Saturday Night Live, 90% of their content is dealing with Trump right. specifically. So whenever the country uh, is in a depression, when uh, things are up in arms, when people don't, are not sure of what's going to happen from day to day, comedy is a relief to a lot of people. And right. I've even noticed, um, even when 9-11 occurred, mm. I was doing comedy then, and my attendance tripled wow. because people were looking for something to feel good about. Uh, some sort of, uh, uh, you know, reason to to let out whatever that frustration is. And right. in the Trump era right now, we don't know if we're going to war. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we don't know if he's going to be impeached. Right. We don't know if with the the, the, the arms and the guns and stuff like that, we, we don't know what's going to happen. Is there going to be a revolution? Right. So folks are looking for a relief. And I really feel like when they go to comedy clubs, it provides that, that yeah. platform. Absolutely. So just to switch gears a little bit, recently Hannibal Burris had his mic cut off for making sexual abuse jokes, making jokes about sexual abuse within the Catholic Church. Do you have a limit to what you will joke about or uh, just like some things that are off limits for you as a comedian? <clears throat> the limitations are based on timing. Mm. It all depends on when and where and to what audience you're presenting or delivering the joke to. Right. Some things that happen, you know, it, it, they're so emotionally, people are so emotionally attached to it. Mm -hmm. You really have to wait for a while. And then there's some things that are taboo, period. Like, you just right. don't touch it. Uh, and I think that, that Hannibal Barris was, he was at, in the wrong place mm -hmm. at the wrong time. Right. And he didn't calculate the joke. So you always right. have to be aware of your audience. You have to be aware of... The, the state of the union that we're in, mm -hmm. and you have to you have to be aware of uh, you know in what way are you presenting it, and, and is it at the right time? Right. And I think Hannibal Barris just took a step too far at the mm -hmm. time, right. and uh, I think he learned his lesson from it though. Yeah, and I mean that kind of is the lesson, right? I I, I used to do stand up comedy in college for a few years, and it was a lot of fun. Like I had I had a lot of fun doing it. But one of the things I learned really quickly was that if something's not funny, the audience will let you know. Like, people don't come and, like, laugh because they want it to laugh. They come for you to make them laugh. Well, with an expectation, even right. if the show is free. Yes, even if the show is free. They still have an expectation because you're a right. stand-up comedian 
and you're supposed to make us laugh. Right. Um, depending on the audience, whether it's a mainstream audience or an urban audience, they all react or respond in a different way. Some audiences are quiet and they just right. stare. Mm-hmm. And you don't even understand, well, okay, why, <laughs> what is it? What's and then the some urban audiences will boo you. Yeah. Or you'll get a heckler or some guy that drank a little bit too much and just starts yelling something out, and he tries to be the comedian right. in the audience. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that, and it's, it's really interesting how that happens. Comedy is so interesting as far as audience participation, how that works sometimes, for or against the comedian. Mm-hmm. But you have a live show coming up, really, yes. like with Brick, and that is March 30th? That's this Friday, March 30th. This Friday, March 30th. Can you tell me a little bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, we're, we're um, maybe 24 episodes in mm-hmm. already, and... Um, the team and I, Justin, Kai, Aziz, we we spoke about it and decided that we should do a special. Right. Since we've done four or five seasons, mm-hmm. let's make it special. Let's invite uh, a studio audience in, mm-hmm. and let's go into our state-of-the-art studio, which brick. It's a seven-camera shoot. I'm so excited about it. Right. So we'll get all angles of the show. So I carefully picked um, uh, a universal lineup, so to speak. Um, I have a Puerto Rican on it. I have a Dominican an African-American, mm-hmm. have two young ladies. Uh, one young lady, her name is Nikki Carr. She came in second place in the last comic standing. Wow. And that was the last season that they did. Another gentleman named Talent, he's done a couple of movies, Sunset Park. He was one of the original hosts of Def Comedy Jam. What? Yeah, I've got some really good talent on the lineup. And then there's some that are new. Right. So I try to blend it, give comedians an opportunity so they can link with some that are seasoned. Right. And they learn from it. And plus, it's an opportunity for them to be, you know, on television and be able to have a tape so they could submit to other agencies or or shows and maybe get picked up. And so go to Brick for information for people who want to come see the show, the Brick website, brickartsmedia.org. Right, you can do that. I I believe we have an event, right? But at this point, uh, 370 people have reserved already. Uh, so some people will be out here on the stage. <laughs> yeah, some of y'all going to yeah. be out here trying to watch it. That's <laughs> yeah. okay. That's okay. Well, thank you so much for being here. I can't tell you how amazing this has been. Um, we have just a little bit of time left. Could you tell us your favorite joke real quick? Oh, that's, I'm glad you said that because yes. my mom passed away two years ago. And mm-hmm. this is some jokes are called stock jokes mm-hmm. where you can go online, but then you kind of change it up and make it your own. So mm-hmm. I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. I mean, I'm Puerto Rican and Haitian. Mm-hmm. That makes me Dominican. Right. So when my mother came to this country, she didn't speak no English. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you listen to Latino people, they speak with a heavy dialect. Mm-hmm. So I told my mom, we want to give you a GED for speaking English as a second language. All you got to do is put the colors green, pink, and yellow in a sentence. But make sure that the word means what it is. Mm-hmm. She was like, okay, cuando I go home, my teléfono green, I pink it up. And say yellow. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. That's a Latino for you. I love that. I'm here for that. Thank you so much, Ray, for being on the show. I hope some people come out. Well, you already know people are going to come out, and some of them are going to be on the steps. But I hope you guys have an amazing time. I'm excited about it, and thank you very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about racial and economic justice with the Transgender Law Center. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. 
Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, Leslie Hayes, and Steve DeSev. And our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.